0: Welcome to the Great Trials podcast, where you
1: get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
2: The facility had made a African American woman the CEO a few months before the trial. Now, up until that point, all of the leaders of that facility had always been white guys. And one of the things that we did that I think was really effective was, you know, we called her first, I think, and um, because she had not had very much interaction with the issues, but she had been the clinical director at the time. I pulled up the screenshots of everyone who had participated in Nick's care and lined them all up with their screenshots, you know, 12 of them. And as you can imagine, they're all Caucasian white guys, <laughs> and said, you know, did all of these gentlemen have more to do with mixed care than you yes but you're the one that has to sit here for three weeks and and answer for their action please
1: rise part is now session all right welcome to the great trials podcast Yvonne Yvonne's going ahead and she's jumping the gun I didn't hear the
3: count in.
1: <laughs> just leave it. Just leave it's, it. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna roll right through it. So this is Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. And as you can uh as you can tell, it's been a while since we've done one of these podcasts. So uh so Yvonne, uh, Yvonne how are you doing?
4: I'm rusty. <laughs> I'm rusty and Pollen has had no mercy on me. So uh sorry for the froggy voice. I'll try to talk yeah. as little as possible.
1: <laughs> it's been it's been just uh, terrible down here, so Um, I'm hurting. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: But I am really excited. We're wrapping up. Well, we're recording this on a Friday. Um, Yes. It will not be posted until a Tuesday as usual. But um, what a way to end the week. We have a really um, exciting case to talk about.
1: I mean we have one of the uh, best cases with uh, two of the best lawyers that uh, that that we've talked to but um the, I mean it's 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 a fascinating case but if, but before we go there Yvonne, I just want to say your voice is sounding especially good for the radio right now you have the perfect I know. radio voice <laughs> I
4: know. I'm ready to uh uh, like, do all kinds of um, voiceover work. Yeah, that's right. Maybe just like a naughty phone operator type oh, thing.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Who all knows? of a
2: sudden, all of a sudden now, for sure, the the uh, the views or listens on this podcast has right. just just jumped 20%. Just sky-
1: skyrocketed. I mean, we know how rate, to get to the audience.
2: Rate, <laughs> rate review, subscribe. Yes, yeah,
1: <laughs> give that's them that's
0: what right. they want.
1: <laughs> Well, let me go ahead and and welcome our our guests, and now I'm sure they're regretting being on the show now, (laughs) Uh, but but I want to go ahead and welcome to the show Natalie Woodward and the Honorable Dax Lopez. Uh, Natalie and Dax, uh, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you. Thank you for having us. And by the way, I lost all my honor about a year and a half ago. So ah, just-
1: no, no. <laughs> you you never never lose it in my eyes. Never lose it. So uh and we'll we'll talk about that. Let me go ahead and introduce you guys to the audience so they can know uh who uh we're hearing from. Uh I'll start with Natalie. And uh, Natalie has been on the show before and had uh, and talked about her um her great uh, wrongful arrest uh, verdict that she had. Uh, and now she's here to talk about, uh, I, I think, I'm pretty sure the largest uh, medical malpractice verdict in the state of Georgia, at least that I can recall. Um, so, and and on, and we'll talk about this on uh, what would be, I think for anybody when it comes in the door, looked at as a, a tough case, at least on its face. But Natalie uh, is a partner at Warshower Woodward at Atkins. Uh, and you can look her up at warlawgroup.com, uh, one of the better uh, website names that I've seen. So uh, and, and I, we can thank Michael for that or Michael and Lyle for that, I'm sure. Of course. But, yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, warlawgroup.com. Um, and Natalie is a, a fantastic trial lawyer. Yeah, she uh, is a double dog, gra- went to undergrad for journalism at University of Georgia and then got her law degree from Georgia uh and uh, has been named as one of the best lawyers in georgia for the past six years i've uh, been named as one of the top 50 women lawyers for the past two years uh is very active with the state bar with the uh, bench and bar and uh and on the executive committee of the georgia trial lawyers association and um so natalie we are uh, we're we're glad to have you on the show
2: Thank you, guys. This is this is fun to be back. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Absolutely, and and I'm still going to call you the Honorable Dax Lopez. Uh, so uh, Dax is a partner in Del Campo Grayson and Lopez, uh, and you can look up Dax at DGLAttorneys.com. That's DGLAttorneys.com. Uh, now, now, Dax, what do we say for somebody who is a double Vanderbilt University grad?
0: You can say that they're heavily in debt. Right, that's right. That's right,
1: that's right. Uh,
0: Double door.
1: Uh, A a Double double door. door. Okay, nice. Very, very nice. I love it. So so Dax is a double door, uh, both undergrad and law school from Vanderbilt University. Uh, He's the past president of the Georgia Hispanic Bar Association, uh, active with the Anti-Defamation League, uh, Cooper Inn of Court, and the trustee of Leadership Georgia. And as you might have guessed, the reason why I keep calling him the Honorable Dax Lopez is because for 11 years, he was a state court judge in DeKalb County, uh, Georgia. For anybody outside of Georgia, that is Atlanta. Um, so, and uh, and just uh, uh, and another great trialer, great judge, uh, and then decided to come off the bench and and uh, to take on a, I mean, I would call this pretty much a simple walk through the park type case and then just go hit it out of the park. So, yeah. No. <laughs>
2: Well, that was exactly how I presented it to right, them. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> the most important fact that you forgot to mention is that Natalie and I went to high school together. Yeah. I,
1: you know, I, I was going to get to that, but yeah, I saw uh, I, I saw that that you guys have been friends since high school. So that is uh, that's fantastic.
2: We were both graduates of uh, the class of 1994. I'm revealing our age, apparently. Um, so yeah, this was this was this was really. You know, special for lots of reasons, and um, we had uh, you know gotten back in touch after law school and had stayed friends, but um, this was obviously the first opportunity we had to work together, and uh, and so yeah, it was it's it's a kind of a sweet story, I think how it how it all worked out. Yeah, like,
0: yeah. And not only tried a case in front of me when I was on the bench, so this is really a full circle moment. To nice, work, nice. To work together not you know not be uh opposed to each other
1: yes yeah well, very nice very nice well and that, that reminds me uh uh dax of it, that i uh tried a case in front of your law partner tony del campo and then tried a case with him so uh so yeah right. <laughs> um, all right well let's talk about this case so the name of the case is uh the estate of nicholas carusolo versus uh metro atlantic recovery residences uh, Richard Waldman, MD, uh, and uh, there's a couple of other people in there that I don't have, but, uh, but I think we call Metro Atlanta recovery residences. It seemed like everybody re- uh, referred to them as Mar uh, throughout the case. Um, and uh, essentially, this involved uh, the death of Nicholas uh, Carusolo. And um, it's, I, I, let, let me just start and uh, in, in, Tell the case, and then uh, and then I'll let you guys talk about it. But uh, it it I'll start at what I think would be the the most difficult part of the case, at least when it, when it comes in the door, which is that that Nick uh, died uh, on September twenty second, twenty seventeen, uh, when he was having a psychotic break and uh, had left the um, the sober home that he was uh, was at um, and basically had been unaccounted for for I think twenty four hours. Uh, He went out onto I-85 in Atlanta. Uh, If if anybody doesn't know what I-85 is, is extremely busy highway, uh, was naked, laid down in the middle of the road in the fetal position, and then was run over or hit by three uh, cars and killed. And so um, you might, um, you know, if you just heard those facts, you would think, uh, you know, why is that a case? But uh, it's it's really the underlying part of it, and that's that's where uh, we had such great work done uh, by both Natalie and Dax in this case. But um, but essentially, uh, Nick struggled with uh, bipolar um, disorder and with substance abuse disorder. And uh, he had I think he had been diagnosed with bipolar since he was around uh, 20 years old, uh, and had been struggling with uh, substance abuse uh, from when he was a teenager. And and uh, Natalie and Dax, I think you all would say that that. That the growing substance abuse problem was was essentially covering the uh, growing bipolar problem that had yet to be diagnosed at the time. Um, he he had been through a number of doctors, a number of treatment facilities in order to treat uh, both his his uh, mental health disorder and his um, and his substance abuse disorder, and he ends up at Mar on um, in August of 2019 or 2017. Sorry. Uh, August of 2017, and the doctor there—that's Dr. Waldman. It sa- it sounded to me from reading the openings and closings that essentially they just didn't believe that he really had uh, much of a mental health problem, even though, as I if I read right, he had seen about 30 doctors who had all diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. But the uh, essentially, I think he had complained of some issues, or some side effects he was having with lithium. He was on lithium and Seroquel. Uh, and, um, so the doctor just immediately took him off of the lithium, uh, which is a, a big problem for somebody suffering uh, bipolar, uh, and then, um, reduced his Seroquel down to a non-therapeutic dose, uh, within, uh, a week or two of that, uh, he had some quote unquote violations of the rules there at Mar, uh, and essentially they kicked him out, um, sent him to a, a, um, sort of a step down uh, with the, what's called a sober home without telling him of his mental health issues. Um, and then shortly after going to this home, he, um, uh, it, 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 it sounded like he may have violated one of their rules uh, as he's decompensating. And then they dropped him off at a, at an alcohol anonymous meeting and then he just disappeared. The next thing they that is heard uh, of, of Nick is that he was killed on the highway um and um and and so that that's the basic facts of the case uh and and i'll let natalie and dax talk about how they went about putting together uh the the case against both the facility and against the doctor and there were some issues with with some documents there and and things that have been changed and um and the problems with you know, basically not treating mental health. But the re- end result of the verdict was a total verdict of $77,596,162.50. And that is broken down uh, by the full value of the life uh, from the perspective of, of Nick uh, was $55 million. The pain and suffering, uh, conscious pain and suffering verdict was ten million nine thousand five hundred. They then got a punitive damages verdict of a million dollars on top of that, and then an attorneys' fees award of eleven million three hundred seventy six thousand six hundred sixty two dollars and fifty cents, and expenses of two hundred ten thousand dollars, adding up to the seventy seven million uh, plus verdict. And um, just, uh, I mean, th- this is looking at this case on its face, and I guess that's where I want to start. Uh, Natalie is um, this does not sound like an easy case. So I, I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is, is when you see this case first came in, what draws you to it? What makes you decide this is the case and, and you're going to move forward with it?
2: Well, I haven't seen a whole lot of easy ones, so right. I'm probably <laughs> skewed. <Yeah. laughs> um, I'm still trying to get to the point in my career where I start getting sent the easy ones. Right, um, right. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm going to, be positive and hope that's the next half of my career. So, um, one, when I got the case, the way I got it actually was a reporter who had covered the news story about the death, um, is a friend of mine. And he had actually interviewed, uh, Nick's dad. And in hearing the story, you know, told Nick's dad, Hey, you know, I have a friend, um, that works on cases involving mental health issues historically i had done some cases involving mental health uh issues and deaths in in jails so suicide cases in jails and that was actually how the reporter and i had gotten to know each other um so when i when i looked at it you know the first conversation i had was with the dad and he he knew um He knew a lot about the issues because his son had battled issues for so long. And so he had been through the process of how it's supposed to work when you are, when you leave a facility, when you come into a facility, when you leave a facility, the amount of involvement that's supposed to be happening with the family. And so he, he didn't know at that point in time exactly what all had happened, but he knew that it had not happened the way it should have based on. Nick's history and being at other facilities. Um, And so at first it was, well, we know that it didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen as it relates from the parents' perspective because they had been through it other times. So then let's figure out exactly what happened. And um, he had been at Ridgeview for about three weeks before he came to MAR. So we were able to obtain the Ridgeview records And then uh, a portion of the MAR records. um, And it became obvious, at least on the front end, that no matter what had happened while he had been at MAR in the three plus weeks, the discharge had not happened appropriately. So we started at it from the perspective of. Well, you know why didn't this discharge happen in the way that discharges are supposed to happen? And that we base that on there's regulations in Georgia on substance abuse treatment centers, and they're not expansive. They're pretty um, they're pretty limited. But one of the things they do cover is how discharges are supposed to occur. So we came at it from that perspective, and then sort of started peeling the onion back and. The more that we looked at, the more it became obvious that there had been multiple, multiple violations of the standard of care. Um, I think one of the things that led me to feel as strongly about the case as I did, and, and also one of the things that made it so hard, was that this was not like a situation with a surgery where you have one or two things go wrong on one specific day. This was literally from the admissions process to the discharge process there had been 30 different instances of violations of the standard of care all involving different people different days different circumstances that all culminated to the to his death and so it's almost like trying a case with 30 different you know, 30 different violations of the standard of care or 30 different episodes of negligence. Um, so yeah, we were, we were dealing with a lot (laughs) that I think that answers that question. Yeah. Um, And it was just an issue that I cared about. I've had some close, I'd lost some close friends through, um, you know, substance abuse and mental health abuse or mental health issues not being properly addressed. So I, I cared about the issue and that was, I think, what made me interested in
1: that. Yeah, so um, you know, in in looking at one one of the things that I was wondering, and I should have mentioned in the in the uh, opening, which was that Mar specifically held it out, held itself out as a dual diagnosis treatment facility would so they they could treat for both mental health issues like bipolar disorder and um, substance abuse issues. And that was sort of their specialty. So you would think this would be like the perfect place for Nick to go. And then and, and it really struck me that in the you know, in reading uh, their pretrial statement and, and things like that about how much they were just blaming on him for you know, the substance abuse, how they were basically just making him sound like he was just a drug addict, that he was addicted to drugs, alcohol and gambling. I think one of them said, um, you know, and, and and it's like, well, you know, wait a minute. Aren't you the guys who should be, you know, the most uh, sympathetic to that and deal with that? So uh, I, I was I was really struck by how they, I guess, chose to defend the case. Um, it's, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dak. Sorry about that.
0: No, no. I was, uh, I was commenting. Yeah. They chose to defend it poorly. Um, right. But picking up where where Natalie sort of left off is um, my sister-in-law is bipolar and only by the grace of God have we not gotten the phone call that our clients got on that night, which is, you know, that their son had walked into the, into I-85 and laid down in the middle of a psychotic break, which the defense really decided to go with. He committed suicide. He made a conscious decision to end his life. And uh, we never ever at any point called this a suicide case. This was not what this case was about, but the defense was dead set on on really blaming Nick for his own ails, right? But this is a person, Nick was a person who was trying to get better. You don't voluntarily submit yourself to treatment 14 times in your life if you don't value your life, if you don't value your future, if you're not trying to get better. So that's really when Natalie called me, I had just left the bench. Uh, probably about a month earlier, Uh, the case was pending in DeKalb. And she, you know, she's like, hey, I've got this case. And very few people think that I've got a case. And, but it's been going for a few years. And, you know, the defense is treating me like I don't have a case, like I'm an idiot for even bringing it. And I just need you to give me a second set of eyes. And so she talked me through what she had. And I think I said, well, if you can prove what you, what you just told me, I think you have a $50 million case. And I think her response was like, uh, no one's ever said that to me, right. you know? <laughs> and I was like, "Are you kidding?" I was like, "No, I, I think that the cab." Everyone thinks the cab is a plaintiffs' haven. Let me go ahead and straighten this out. I was there for 11 years. It is not a plaintiffs' haven. DeKalb County is a very fair place. I would say, if you've got a good case with good facts and good damages, a jury will give you good money. But the 100 defense verdicts that came before that one don't make the front page of the Fulton Daily. So I think a lot of people have this sort of skewed view of Decab as a plaintiff's haven. It's not. I thought Decab was the exact right place for this kind of case, not because it's got some reputation as a plaintiff's haven, but because I ran a DUI court, a substance abuse court in Decab for 11 years, and what I learned through that process is that everyone in Decab has someone in their family who's mm-hmm. dealing with addiction. Everyone in DeKalb has someone in their family who's dealing with mental illness or both. Or, or maybe even our potential jurors is the person who's dealing with those things. And I was like, you're going to have a, a jury that understands the issues in this case, and they're going to be outraged by the way Nick was treated. And sure enough, you can ask Natalie, when we got our panel of 90, uh, 78 of our 90 had family members with addiction or substance, you know, substance addiction, or mental illness in their family. So every time the defense stood up and badmouthed Nick for being an addict, they're bad, badmouthing juror number 16's mom for being an addict, right. juror number 12's dad for being an addict. You know, I was like, this is a terrible strategy because our jurors, 10 of our 12 jurors had addiction or mental illness in the family. And they fully understood. We had one juror whose dad committed suicide after 9 11 because he was a firefighter in 9 11. So hmm. we had jurors who understood the issues and the defense was just so callous about the way they talked about addiction and, and decisions to end life that it really ended up offending our jurors in a way that we Natalie and I just have to sort of step aside and let them do it uh, and, and not fight everything they said.
1: Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed.
3: Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me
1: yes yes a lot more working from the computer yes and only getting (laughs) dressed from the uh from the waist up but you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services
3: that's right i mean being good at doing things virtually at doing things through zoom through video conference online it's more important now than ever
1: i'll say zoom or webex or whatever you use now legal technology services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized looking good our depositions our hearings our mediations have all changed and a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of legal technology services so they get our exhibits in order um, you know and you call up the exhibits by number they'll highlight them they'll enlarge them they'll do whatever they want and it actually flows really well I do have to say I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services.
3: Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you you can always count on them to conduct themselves well clients like them judges like them courts like them lawyers like them
1: yeah the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us they always like our trial techs whether it's Bob Taylor Quentin David Liz Just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the great trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. I guess I'm wondering, since this, since this facility is, holds itself out as treating these two things, was there uh, stuff on their website talking about? substance abuse and, and addiction and, and all those things that you're talking to the jury about. And now they're, when they're defending the case, they're just, you know, treating them like they're, they're not real. Was there any, any evidence like that?
2: Yeah. I mean, we did, you know, because it had been almost, you know, well, almost to the day, five years since it had happened. Um, a lot had changed with the facility. A lot, there'd been a lot of turnover. A lot of the folks who had been there had not been there. We, I mean, we, we used the Wayback machine and went back and tried to pull, um, you know, the website material that had been there versus the website material that was there today. And you know, one of the things that that Dax did such a beautiful job in helping me with is because, you know, he comes on in December, and we were planning on trying the case in May. It got bumped. We didn't actually try it until August. But having that fresh set of eyes, especially given his experience, I mean, he, he's he been through technically more trials than all of us combined, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. More trials than anybody that we know. Granted, he's sitting at the judge's table, but that gave him a perspective of what, what we really needed to focus on and what we needed to skip. I mean, there was so much that that we had to decide, um, where to really focus on the issues because there had been 30 plus depositions taken. Um, and you know, there's six, seven experts between maybe more between plaintiff and defense. Um, and that perspective, I think helped me so much in knowing, this is what we should focus on. And this is what we should just let go. Cause you just can't, you can't get it all in, you know, there's just not enough right. time. Right. Um, and that's, I almost feel like it takes somebody who's not been in it from the beginning to be able to give you that perspective. Um, because it's just hard to see when you, when you've lived it day in and day out for years and you've been to every deposition and, you know, God bless his heart. He, uh, you know, that had to read all these depositions.
0: (laughs) I can, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Natalie won this case in discovery. These cases are won in discovery uh she you know it was so funny every time i mean she went down every rabbit hole she i mean everything she did everything and i would would be like did you even look at what the weather was that night just kidding around did you even know what the weather was on the night he died she's like oh yeah i pulled that there was there was (laughs) and you know it's like i was like wow i mean that's how detailed she got but to her point yeah we can't present all that to a jury right uh it's going to get lost we have to have some high level themes and and we have to make this, uh, you know, something that the jury will will be re- will relate to. And I really, we really, I think, started with Doctor Waldman in this case. Right, Doctor Waldman's decision as the psychiatrist, as the medical director for Mar, the person who is supposed to be directing sort of that mental health aspect of Mar, because Mar really is more about addiction. But the guy who's supposed to be handling the mental health aspect didn't believe Nick from moment one. Nick sits with him for an hour on day one, and Doctor Waldman, based on a one-hour discussion, makes a determination that this is not a person who's really bipolar; he's really just an addict. Mm-hmm. And based on that quick one-hour evaluation, Doctor Waldman makes a decision to start lowering the two medications that are keeping Nick stable. Right. So he makes a decision on day on day one to lower the seroquel. Seven days later, he makes a decision to discontinue the lithium entirely. Now, mind you, Nick's coming from Ridgeview. He was coming from the psychiatric unit at Ridgeview. And Ridgeview had come up, had finally figured out the right combination of drugs at the right dosages to stabilize them. You would think Dr. Waldman would pick up the phone and call the psychiatrist over at Ridgeview and say, hey, tell me why you put them on these doses. Tell me what was going on that led to this. Dr. Waldman doesn't do a damn thing and makes these decisions. And after he makes these decisions, he acknowledges at trial, he acknowledges deposition, that you would expect to see Nick to compensate pretty quickly, within a couple of days, within a couple of weeks, within two weeks. And instead of telling his counselors and all the other folks at MAR, hey, guys, I've, I've taken Nick off his medications. If you start seeing any bizarre behavior, let me know, because that might be a sign of decompensation. He doesn't do that. So one, you know, the right hand's not talking to the left hand. The counselors who only primarily deal with folks who have addiction issues just see Nick as, oh, this is a guy who didn't want to get help. He didn't want to follow the rules. They don't see his decompensation as a as a sign or symptom of a mental illness. They see it as an addict who doesn't want to follow the rules. So it was really, we had to build a narrative around that uh, and the fact that no one was talking. His primary counselor wasn't talking to a psychiatrist. No one knew what was going on. And they make these terrible decisions that lead to Nick being you know, essentially kicked out of this facility unceremoniously. And mind you, as they're kicking him out, uh, Mike, Nick's dad, they call him to tell him what's going on. And Mike immediately asks about the medications. Did you take Nick off his meds? And they're like, oh, yeah, I think we did. He's like, if you kick my son out right now, and, and this is undisputed at trial, if you kick my son out right now, he'll be dead within three days in the streets of Atlanta. And they just, they said, you know, you're, you're, you're an enabler. This is why he's never going to get better. You're always trying to solve his problems. You know, you, you need to stop being so hyperbolic. And, and sure enough, unfortunately, Mike's was, was very prescient and he, he knew exactly what would happen because he knows what happens to his son when he's not on his medications.
1: Yeah. And, and for like the average Jur. I mean, I think we've all heard stories of, you know, people who have mental health disorders and then they go off their meds and then something bad happens not really understanding what exactly the meds do or why, you know, but you just know you're supposed to be on the meds. what what ex- I mean, I, I read the affidavit, but can you just explain to our listeners what what does lithium do for somebody who's bipolar that why you don't want to just stop it dead or stop basically? It
2: cold? So basically, the idea behind the the meds that you're given is that they' are a mood stabilizer. So when someone's bipolar, it means that they have high highs, which are which is the mania, and you know excessive energy, you know um, irrational thoughts, grandiosity. That's the mania part, the and then it will it will transition to the lowest of lows depression-wise. So a lot of the reason why you have someone who's bipolar, if they're not on meds that's keeping them more in the center, um, then what will happen a lot of times is that they do turn to illegal substances to basically self-medicate. So when they're feeling depressed, cocaine or a substance like that will act as an upper. And then on the flip side, when you're manic, you have alcohol will serve as a depressant. So those two substances will kind of will act to keep you within that that framework. And the issue with Nick, how they knew that he really was bipolar is that when he would be in a treatment facility in the years before this and have no medications and no illegal drugs, so nothing to you know create any kind of barrier, that's when he would become um, that's when he would have hallucinations, hear voices, and that's how they knew, oh, he's for real bipolar because when he's completely clean in terms of no medications, no drugs, nothing, that's when his bipolar will, will reach its full extremes. So the medications keep you, you know, uh, within a within a section of a mood. That's why they're called mood stabilizers. Um, the the flip side of that, though, the negative part, and the reason why it's hard a lot of times to treat it, is because all of these medications have side effects, and different folks are going to respond to the medications differently. Some of them will get on the medication and it'll be too much of a depressant, so they're lethargic all the time, and they feel like they're gaining weight, and so. And then the other time is, okay, well, I. I'm, I'm, I'm keyed up all the time, right? I can't sleep. I've got insomnia issues. And so trying to find that correct drug combination is the reason why a lot of times you'll have folks who have, who are treated with more than one medication. They're trying to work in concert with each other. What was unique about this time is that Nick had never been on lithium before. He tried lots of other drugs, lithium's a drug's been around for a really long time. Um, But because it's not associated with a pharmaceutical company anymore. No one's making money off lithium when they prescribe it. Mm -hmm. It's not the, you know, today's favorite mental health drug. So it took a while for them to basically get to the point where they're like, Hey, let's try, let's go back to the good old fashioned first one out of the gate and see how that goes. The other reason why it works better for some folks is that it, because it is a naturally occurring substance Lithium is; it doesn't have some of the side effects, which had been the issues he had he had had with previous medications. Um, so, I think one of the things that was wonderful about the jury and about the experts that we had is that they were they were able to explain that and that when you remove that net, you know, the medications are they're not they don't fix everything. You know, it's not like someone's perfect. But they're not reaching the extremes of depression or mania, and when you have the mania, is when you slip in a lot of times to the hallucinations and delusions, that are really where someone's at their most dangerous.
1: Yeah, I I, I should say I thought the I mean the theme it, it looked like that you were developing or developed during trial was that they took away Nick's safety net, and uh, and I thought that was a very uh, effective theme or very you know effective way to describe. You know how these medications would help him and why taking them away you know basically left it so he was out there you know without anything and then again in the other part i didn't mention uh in the many facts that i missed missed in the opening which was once he once he died they did the autopsy on him and there were no drugs in his system uh, i think they found caffeine and uh, nicotine so he was drinking coffee smoking cigarettes But no illegal substances and no, uh, you know, prescribed substances either. So obviously, you know, this was something that happened while he was not under the influence of any any medications.
2: And that to me, I think, was huge. You know, when someone asked I got asked this question at a CLE, you know, would would I have still taken the case if he'd had illegal drugs in his system? You know, um, and I I don't know that I would have then. I think now I would have because now I realize more, so much more even now that that's a product of self-medication because you've been taken off of the meds you need. But at the time when someone says, gosh, this, you know, how do you say yes to a case like this? I did have the advantage then of the autopsy and the toxicology and knowing, oh, he, whatever happened to him, happened to him completely sober. Right. And that was that was huge for me at the time. Um, it sounded like y'all had done a, a questionnaire
4: for the jury about some of those issues about. Um, can you talk a little bit um, about what you tried to address or preliminarily handle through the questionnaire?
2: Well, what we didn't want to do was we didn't want to, you know, taint the whole jury pool by having someone who had had a personal bad experience or, you know, with either the issues or with one of the defendants. And so the questionnaire was very simple. It was about eight questions, yes or no. Have you had personal experience with these issues or the defendants, you know, um, and um, have you lost a family member to, Substance abuse, mental health issues. Yes or no? And then, what we did was we brought them. Everyone who had said yes to any of those questions, we brought them in and talked to each one of them one on one. And then, you know, as to what their experience was, and then talked to them about, you know, could they be fair? Um, I I think there were twenty something strikes for co- defense strikes for cause with jurors who said they they didn't think they could be fair because they would had a bad experience, not necessarily with this facility, but with some type of facility. And the judge, uh, I think correctly, I don't think she turned down any of their requests to strike for cause. We only had one um, (laughs) strike (laughs) for cause that we made that we were actually on the fence about at the time, but um, it was actually the person who was the psychiatrist at Grady and (laughs) you know, it's uh, who is the emergency psychiatrist at Grady. (laughs) We're like, well, if we leave her on the jury, she'll be the only juror. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But she may have been great for us. Uh, (laughs) but know, that's, that's all, that's too close to home for all the obvious reasons. Um, but it was shocking, I think to all of us, how expansive the the subject matter knowledge was of the issues.
0: I can make two points about jury selection. Well, one is that should show you how one-sided our jury was. It was twenty-seven to one. Um, they, you know, it was amazing to see all these jurors come in and share about their personal lives, and everyone had something that w- was relatable to our side. And I kept looking at the defense, like, "This is the jury you want to go to trial with. Like, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able. Your six peremptories are not going to be enough to cut around what what is what is going to happen when we finally get a, a panel together." That was one. The second shocking thing about I guess this is a, a huge defense mistake i would I would say, is doing mediation, we mediated this case a few months before it didn't go anywhere. There were no offers made. It was actually a huge waste of time. Uh, but one thing we learned through that process is that they they kept saying, well, we're not worried about the cab, we're not worried about the cab. And I asked them, you know what they meant by that. And the mediator said, well, they said that uh, they're not worried about the racial aspect of the cab because, They didn't think that an African-American jury would give a rich white family money. And I was like, are they are they viewing this case as a race case? Because that is a terrible miscalculation. This is not about race. The issues in this case transcend race and socioeconomic class. I mean, it's about this impacts everyone. But they were true to the word. They really believed it. when we got to trial, they the defense ended up striking several of the white jurors. Uh, They were they were striking, you know, what would be a prototypical um, defense juror, you know, uh, maybe a white affluent person who lives in a part of town that was maybe more conservative. uh, And they were striking those folks. Uh, And I was like, that's kind of weird. These these would be the folks that they should. Now, each of those people also had uh, experiences with mental illness and and uh, and drug addiction, which was incredible. There was no one that this didn't touch but we ended up with a jury that was 11 African-Americans and one white guy. And our one white guy had been in recovery for 36 years, went to AA every single day. So he understood the recovery systems. And I looked at that jury as like, wow, I mean, you're not going to get a better jury than that for this kind of case. And, and Steve, to the point, Tony came to watch Tony, Campo, my partner, we were in his former courtroom, which is funny. That was where he uh, division two and he comes in to watch and he, and he saw the jury and he, like, during the break comes up to me, he's like, did y'all do that? And I was like, no, they did. The defense did. He's like, do they not understand what this jury is likely to do to them? I was like, I, I don't think they do. And sure <laughs> enough, the jury was phenomenally good for us, Not you know, just because they understood the issues.
1: So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online and you can have all the great verdicts in the world but if nobody knows about them then they're not going to come and hire your law firm so you need to find a company like digital law marketing.
3: That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of.
1: Yeah. Cause it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this and not only will they help you design your website, if you need to, they'll do your content marketing. They'll do your search engine optimization. As Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital marketing is great at it.
3: Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah, it's not like they would already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell
2: them, tell them we sent you. This is all, we're all learning how this, you know, the, you know, how to respond to this. The facility had made a African-American woman the CEO a few months before the trial now up until that point all of the leaders of that facility had always been white guys right and they name a few months before the trial and and designate her that she's going to be the the corporate representative for trial beautiful you know uh, a lady who actually had been there when nick was there but had never met him or maybe if she met him she met him in passing once and One of the things that we did that I think was really effective was we called her first, I think, out the gate. I think she was the first witness that we called. And um, because she had not had very much interaction with the issues, but she had been the clinical director at the time, um, I pulled up the uh, screenshots of everyone who had participated in Nick's care and lined them all up with their screenshots you know 12 of them and as you can imagine they're all caucasian white guys i think and said you know did all of these gentlemen have more to do with mixed care than you yes you know but you're the one that has to sit here for three weeks and and answer (laughs)
0: for their actions (laughs) right yeah yeah
2: and yeah yikes (laughs) And it was, you know, it's funny because of the screen when we'd taken the screenshot, we'd you know had the same background for the videographer, and it was blue, so it looked like that same color blue as the Brady Bunch. So it's all lined <laughs> up in squares like the Brady Bunch.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the visual of that, and that was, you know, I, uh, Callie Bryce, a friend of mine, and I, I remember calling her before the trial and saying, "Hey, I don't, you know, is this, how's this, is, what do you think about this? This African American woman, I'm probably going to have a predominantly African American jury." And she was the one that said, I think they're going to be mad that they're making her right. you know, cover for them. Like, yeah. Why is she the one that's having to sit there for three weeks? I'm like, oh, that's of course. So um, that, I think, did not have the f- intended effect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I, I, so I wanted to go back to the facts for a second. I, I wanted to see. Um, so so Dr. Waldman you know, takes him off of the lithium drops the Seroquel, but then it's an employee of Mar that actually discharges um, Nick and doesn't tell Dr. Waldman. And I guess I'm wondering how, how did all of that play out at trial? What did Dr. Waldman have to say about that?
2: Well, it, w- it was in a tight spot because even though he was, he presented himself as an independent contractor, he was still the medical director. So because he was the medical director, he's in charge of making all the policies as to when they have to tell him and what they have to tell him. And he had not implemented that policy that he'd be required to be notified. So it was going to be kind of a dance if he had wanted to separate himself. Although I think it would have been a dance that he could have done. Um, but he, they chose not to, they held hands through the whole trial. Um, And that's what was interesting, too, is that the case was only a medical malpractice case as it relates to Waldman, the doctor. As it relates to everyone else, they're not they're not listed on the 9-11, 9.1 list of folks who you have to have an expert affidavit for. So the folks who are, you know, certified addiction counselors as it relates to their conduct, it really wasn't, you know, it really wasn't a medical malpractice case. It was like, it was like a premises case and with a medical malpractice component. Um, So they, they, they stayed in lockstep um, all the way through. And
1: so so basically the doctor testified that it wasn't, it, it wasn't like a breach or a problem that he hadn't been told that, that Nick had been discharged.
0: Which is, which is insane because one of our best pieces of evidence was the discharge form that had on it discharging medical, you know, the doctors, there was a signature line for the discharging MD and that was blank. Right. And they got the whole thing. The rest of it was filled out, but they clearly had a signature line for the doctor to discharge a patient. They didn't get that. So that was something obviously we highlighted and had it blown up and kept showing it to the jury. But, you know, back to Natalie's point, the fact that they were holding hands I, I was shocked. I I fully expected that once we got to trial, the doctors going to say, "Look, I may have taken him off all his medications, but I did it in a safe environment. He's in our facility." So, yeah, we may have an adverse outcome in sen- in the sense that he might decompensate, but I'm doing it in- within the confines of our facility so we can address it. He didn't do that. And he could have said, "Look, they discharged him without my knowledge. I had nothing to do with kicking this guy out." But he they held like surprisingly they, they jumped off the cliff together uh, instead of at some point pointing the finger at one another, you know, because obviously the facility could have turned around and said, we didn't, you didn't tell us you, he was on meds and that you took him off his meds. You didn't tell us all the things that were going on with Nick. So they each, there was a little bit of a mature, you know, mutually assured destruction going on. Right. They each could have pointed the finger at the other. And I guess they thought, nope, we didn't do anything wrong as a whole. They just went with the, this is Nick's fault and we're going to point the finger at Nick. And they both adopted that sort of point of view. So they held hands the whole way.
2: And I think that was the strategy and they all, they all but said it, I think at some point in the closing was that the, the train was down the tracks, meaning that, that Nick was just a lost cause. And inevitably it, he was headed towards the same outcome, no matter what anyone had done, no matter how many times he went to facility, he just wasn't ever going to, You know, this was just the hot potato and, you know, whoever just happened to end up with him at their facility at the, at the wrong time, this was just inevitable ultimately because he just wouldn't do his part. And, um, and I think the, the problem with that is that a lot of their employees are all ex-addicts. Right. A lot of whom have been through that facility. So if you want an example of the fact that it is that folks can come out the other side of this and get married and have kids and have careers well we called one after the other of them for cross because they had been employed their employees at the facility so that's a hard lace to kind of to lace that through like how can you say it's just a matter of time that that you know you're he's not going to ever be able to to really recover when you've got a whole cast of characters who have recovered and they didn't go to just one facility. And they were, a lot of them, some of them had gone through MAR multiple times yeah. um, because I think, I think that the place has had a lot of success over the years, it's been around a long time and done a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, so I thought, I think that was a, that was hard to sell that, that it was just inevitable.
0: And it was all their experts, all their expert doctors were former addicts, which was, striking right. to uh, you know, one, of the, I said, wait, you can become a doctor and be an addict. Like, you know, this is a, you know, they, they were making the case for us that people can recover. And if they get appropriate treatment, which is what our experts kept saying, right, if you properly treat these issues, these folks can overcome and become productive citizens. It might take several times. Some cases are harder than others, but there is, you know, there is uh, a light at the end of this tunnel if you do it the right way.
4: Did can I you- see that that Nick had like picked? Mar or he had he had kind of reached out to them or had heard about them,
2: yeah, so he had he had actually so while at Ridgeview, once they got his they upped his lithium at Ridgeview up it got him stable and then he was ready to go to a residential facility instead of being in a psychiatric hospital and he called Mar himself um to you know see if he could apply because there's an application process, right? They're a private facility. They don't have to take anybody. And, you know, one of the issues in the case was that, you know, it's like the perfect storm because according to their own policies, if your primary diagnosis is bipolar disorder or if your primary diagnosis is mental health issues, then you shouldn't be at MAR. MAR wants you, if your primary issue is substance abuse, and it's okay if you have a secondary underlying mental health issue but if your main problem is mental health you're not supposed to be there um but in the testimony that came out was that this was they were having a time where their census was down and so they were saying yes to some folks if they could pay um and and you know skipping some steps on the evaluation aspect of this um and and that all that all came out i mean juries you know We say it over and over and over again. They're just, they're, they're smarter than we give them credit for. They see stuff that we think we've got to explain to them. Like they're two-year-olds. We don't, they, they get it. (laughs) And, and that was, that was true. That was true here. Can
1: you talk about the issue? So the, the discharge records that uh, the employee had filled out, I mean, there's a couple of issues going on there. One is there's some comments in there about how he really needed to go. Nick needed to go to a higher level facility, but yet they were discharging him to this lower level facility. But then there was also evidence. And and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you figured out the audit trail stuff to figure out that they had actually entered these comments after they found out that Nick had died. So I know there's a couple issues there, but i yeah. love to hear about
2: both. I'll let Dax talk about that because that was, you know, this was the part that we we struggled on how to present this in a way that made sense because it, it did interlace this IT stuff. But um, you know, the the basically the audit trail aspect of figuring out when they entered that in came about because the, the one day that had the most information on it was the day that he had gotten. Discharged. All the days prior to that had like one line or four or five lines. And I'm like, well, that's super convenient. You know, either they now maybe they just did a really thorough job because it was they were discharging them, but maybe not. So let's find out. And so once you start pulling that that sweater string, it's it's either gonna be that it's just what it says it is, right? Which doesn't hurt you, or it's gonna be something more nefarious. And in this situation we were able to find out that all of that documentation had been done um, after they found out Nick had died, but they changed the date on it to make it look like it had been entered in the date of the discharge when really it had been entered in after they knew he died. Um, So that I think, but at the time, I think when they said, you know, he needs a higher level of care, they didn't know yet what had happened to him. So they, I'm hypothesizing, this was a, we argued this to the jury, you know, they probably were thinking he had gone and OD'd. And so they put that in as a way to counter what their anticipation is that, oh, he he probably went and OD'd. And, you know, we told him to go to a higher level of care and he wouldn't do it, you know, but, you know, sort of circling the blame back to him, not realizing that he's going to be clean on his autopsy and a higher level of care is exactly what needed to happen for his mental health issues.
0: Yeah. Wow? Alter, I'm sorry. I
2: was no, gonna say, go ahead,
4: Dax.
0: I was gonna say the altered record issue, really, I mean, I just couldn't believe they were going to try a case with altered records. It wasn't That's just my question. Yeah. It's not even just the discharge note. I mean, the discharge note was written 10 days after he died. The discharge note. The progress notes, the, prog- the daily progress notes, notes that are supposed to be put in the day he, you know, every single day, so everyone can see how the progress is going. I can log on the system. Let's see how Nick's doing. Okay, Counselor A says this. Counselor B says that. S- like six or seven of them were all input after he was dead. Like all, like they were not being input daily, so they were going back and filling in the record that they were not keeping. Again, you're not caring for this guy. You're not helping this guy because no one knows how he's progressing because there's no progress notes. But the discharge note in particular is so offensive because I think what we did really effectively with both Mike and Tina, the parents, is when you're a parent who's trying to figure out what happened to your son and you order the records mm-hmm. and what you get is the cold blank page, right? You, get, you don't get the audit trail. They send you a page and you're looking at it and it's dated the day of the discharge. And when you read it, the way it was written was written in the present tense. Today, this morning, Nick did, you know, Nick turned in a cell phone and we decided to discharge him. That if you're reading that, you think it's a it's written contemporaneously on the 919. But when you figure out that it was written 10 days later, but it was written to deceive, it's actually written in a way that's deceptive. And the great thing is that Mar had a policy on how to do these things, how to do back notes. And it specifically said you need to put the date on which you're making the note. So this would have been 928. And then you, in the note, you make it clear that you're referring to something that happened in the past. So the, the note should have said September 28th. And it should, you know, the narrative should say on September 19th, Nick did whatever. And then we made decisions. That's how it should have been written. So it's absolutely clear. And so we were able to put up their policies on how to do progress notes and show the jury that they're buying their own their own progress notes, I mean, their own policies. And that helps, you know, it's the cover-up. It's never the crime.
4: Mm-hmm. It's yeah.
0: always the cover-up. It looks shady as hell that they're creating this discharge this note. And we did it with Tina. We did it with Mike. This is what you saw. This is what you read. You had no other information. No one called you and said, hey, let, let, let's show you the audit trail so you know when these things are written. And I think the jury really, because they kept saying their whole defense to that was that internally, everyone at Mar, when they're inputting notes, could see when everything was made. And we're like, great, people at Mar know, but the parents will never know. You never invited them to come look at your internal system. And I think that every time they kept defending it, they just made the jury mad, right, like, because, you know, the – their their justifications for why they were doing it made no sense whatsoever. And then to Natalie's point, what they wrote was great for us. <laughs> even the cover-up was really poorly done because <laughs> the cover-up was he needed a higher level of care. Well, yeah, we agree. Right. What, if, he need, if he needs a higher level of care, why are you sending him to a lower level of care? <laughs> it's like even in the cover-up, the, the discharge note was great for us because the first line really was. This morning, Nick turned in a cell phone, and they ultimately discharged Nick because he violated their cell phone policy. We took the position, and I think we made a very strong argument based on the AA rules, that part of AA is being honest, right? Steps five and 10, admit when you're doing something wrong, admit your wrongs. And we think that we made the case that Nick was just doing what they were teaching him. Nick came to them and turned in the cell phone because he's now really trying to get real help. And you know who understood that? Our, our four-person juror, who's been in recovery for 35 years, he goes to AA every day, who understands, yeah, Nick was just doing what you taught him. So I think we effectively were able to throw those altered notes and really make, not just that they were altered, but really make a narrative around why they were altered and why it was so, so bad that they did what they did.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's you know just everything about this case. The 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 it seemed like just a total lack of compassion for the people that they claim they're trying to help, which uh, is is just sort of backwards. But I mean, I guess you know when you're in court and you you got nothing else to say, say something. So it it just just really (laughs) it's really out of
4: touch, right? Like who doesn't know at this point how. How many people have someone in their family with a dual diagnosis or or at a minimum with with either mental illness or addiction, like, you know, at this point, you got to be living under a rock to not know that that touches most people's lives and that you can't deal with that by blaming the addict or saying that the addict was a lost cause. I mean, I get, that's, that's something I don't understand. That to me shows some obliviousness, even if you felt you could deal with or explain away some of that record stuff, which I also really don't understand. Um, I really don't get that kind of insensitivity to the fact that, that most people have had a family member, if not themselves, really struggle with this stuff.
0: Well, we were, I just, we stayed, we stayed true to our valuation i told her day one 50 million we asked for 50 million dollars when we stood up at the end and the jury gave us 65 million in compensatory and it's not natalie's an amazing lawyer and i'm a decent lawyer it's not because we're really good lawyers it's because just what you just said the the lack of sensitivity they just thought he was a loser they painted him out to be a loser who was a lost cause who's you know the trainers were on the track and there's no there's no redeeming quality for this young man and the jury gave us 15 million dollars more than we asked for because of that because of really just punished the other side for taking the positions that they took uh, and it's really funny I, when I was about to sit down i think i said look you know, Miss Woodward's going to ask you for $40 million for the value of life and $10 million for the pain and suffering. And, you know, I really want to hear what the defense has to tell you about this. And I challenge him to tell you why he's not worth that. And I said, but I suspect the reason they're not, they're going to do, I suspect what they're going to do is they're going to tell you every drug he's ever used. And when they tell you every drug he's used, that's telling you, that's them telling you he's not worth it. Right. And I think they're going to tell you every facility he's ever gone to. And when they show you a facility, that's them telling you he's not worth it. Like he's he's beyond repair, beyond hope. What's the first thing that defense lawyer does when he gets up? The very first thing he goes, <laughs> right, "Mr. Lopez is right. I am going to show you every drug he's ever used." And he puts up a slide, his his PowerPoint slide. First slide was every drug Nick has ever used from like two thousand nine on. And I look at the jurors. I'm like, I "Told you." And then yeah. the, the second <laughs> the second slide was every facility Nick had ever been to. Uh, at that point
2: i was like all right we're good and we set that up in the beginning i mean we set that up in the beginning which i i was that said in the opening like this is what the case is about it's about not discharging him appropriately and taking him off his meds that's all it's about it's about these three weeks when he's at mar it's not about everything that he had done beforehand and you know whether he had been great guy, wonderful guy, done one drug, 20 drugs, it's not what it's about. The only thing y'all are here about today is, is was the discharge appropriate and was changing his medications and taking them off without replacing them was that appropriate, period. But they're going to come up here and they're going to talk to you about everything else but those two things, because they don't want to talk about those two things, because those two things are not in dispute. The, the crazy thing about this case that I still can't quite wrap my mind around is there was no facts that were in dispute. Everything that happened or didn't happen, there was everybody agreed. It was really just about was this okay or not, period. Not did it happen, did it not happen because there was no dispute about the audit trail, no dispute about the meds being taken off, no dispute about the discharge process or lack thereof. It's just a matter of, is it okay? And sure enough, When they come up, I mean, they were one of the things they did with the cross of the mom is that they pulled up an email, one email they found from old records from like 2008, where she had they were arguing, was referencing Nick at some point making some kind of suicide threat 15 years ago. And that email was what they were using to cross her about. It was just. Yeah. So, but they did, you know, obviously get the suicide argument in. They um based that as a reason to apportion damages to Nick. Um, and if the jury had bought that or thought it was suicide, we took the position that we do not believe it's suicide. But even if it even if you believed it would be suicide, they're still liable because
4: right.
2: yeah, they've they've not given him the appropriate care. So the amount apportioned to Nick was zero. And and the, I think for the parents. That's the, that's the biggest number. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think it's crazy that their whole defense was sort of predicated on attacking the people that they claim to help and that they built their business on. I mean, it's,
2: it, but it know. happens a lot, right? It's, right like, yeah. it's like the nursing home cases <clears throat> that are right. ended on because they're old. right? Right.
1: Right. <laughs> right <laughs> exactly well let, let's uh let's turn to the damages portion of this case because I, I really want to hear and you've already talked about it some but but can you just talk a little bit about how you approach the full value of the life of nick and i mean 55 million dollars for for full value of life and then and the pain and suffering portion of it the the, the 10 million can you uh, talk about how you came up with the numbers you asked for and obviously you asked for not quite that much, but, um, but you know, how you approach those and how you build up those damages.
2: I I don't remember who came up with the idea and it was probably both of us because, you know, the, the, I can't say enough about, you know, Dax knows how special he is to me through all this experience, but it really was just, you know, it's grueling. It's grueling. It's 18 hour days weeks on end. I'd never had a case. It was three weeks long. I was exhausted. We all were, I did not know what we were asking until that morning. <laughs> and I think it was the day before. Um, so Mar charged $500 a day for that was the charges to be there. Um, and I had heard a closing at like a CLE. I think it was uh, Drew Ashby's closing that he had done in his, in his boat case. Um, was a seven-year-old that had passed away, mm-hmm. and somewhere in the soup of all that that we hear, we came up that there's there's $500 days in your life where you've been at a facility where you're you're controlled, what you eat is decided by someone else, who you can be around is decided by someone else. You're basically in some form of a prison, you know that you've that you've willingly walked into. All right, that's a $500 day. And then there's million dollar days. And that's when you're, you know, your daughter gets married or your son graduates from college and, and you know, or the day you fall in love or, or being there when a parent dies. So you can hold the other parent's hand. And so if you in any given life, if you have, you know, 10 million dollar days, you're doing good. And if so, if you have a five hundred dollar day and then you basically have days that are worth fifty thousand and days that are one hundred thousand dollar days. Um, and then you you add that up over a life expectancy of forty plus years. Um, that's that's how we got to it. And you know the 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 pain and suffering part was look once he once you took him off his meds and he's decompensating that's some form of mental torture that you're subjecting him to for weeks um, to the point that you you created psychosis in him. Um, So that he would be so out of it and hallucinating that he would be so confused and disoriented that he'd be willing to lay down and and face forward in traffic in the fetal position.
1: So had you built that part up what you're talking about, what he was going through without his meds? Did you build that part up through your experts?
2: We,
0: we didn't, we really really just sort of left it alone and just really mentioned it for the first time in closing. Um, And, the other thing we sort of did is, you know, we we did put in a picture, uh, a scene photograph. We didn't publish it. We we told we put the photograph in because the the, the scene photographs are horrific. I mean, it, a body that's been hit by three cars, mm-hmm. it, it's as bad as it gets. And but I wanted to put one in. And what we did is um, we told the jurors we're going to seal it in an envelope. And they didn't have to look at it if they didn't want to. And of course, they immediately once they got into deliberations ripped it open and looked at it but we wanted to be respectful of them and you know not show them something horrific and something graphic and and but i think that in the way we did it which is again trying to be respectful of the jurors and and being sensitive to them and letting them to make the decision and we just didn't have to really talk about damages that much throughout the trial i mean i think the jurors understood that nick was in pain you don't you don't do what he did if you're not and we did put in uh we did have some evidence that he was seen screaming on the side of the road before he runs out to the middle there was a man screaming outside uncontrollably nick was going through some really horrific psychosis at the moment uh and our and so we did have our expert talk about that but not so much about what what you know if it was torture or not we just sort of threw that out that threw that out in closing and obviously they gave it to us now, what's really interesting? They gave us ten million nine thousand five hundred dollars. I think we figured out that the nine thousand five hundred dollars was the deposit the family made for Mar.
1: They I was wondering, yeah. They,
2: they didn't reimbursed. ask for that. They came up with that on their own. Yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> They reimbursed the deposit that the parents made at Mar in full.
1: Very nice. Well, and, and um, go ahead, Yvonne.
3: No, no, go ahead, Steve.
1: <clears throat> Well, I, I was just going to ask about the attorney's fees uh, okay, portion <laughs> of the case, because, uh, you know, that's always then. And, and um, so it, there's a couple of different ways in Georgia that you can get attorney's fees. Uh, I'm not sure I know which way you all went about it, but can you talk a little bit about that? And then that was in a second phase of the case, I assume. Was. Okay. That
2: was funny because, you know, we do all these things that, you know, to to cover ourselves for these possibilities that usually never occur. And um, and so when they checked yes to bad faith and yes to punitives and the judge says, okay, we'll see y'all in three hours to do that part. You know, you walk out and you're like, all right, let me start calling folks to ask them how do I do this? Because (laughs) we hadn't done it before. We're literally up in a, you know, conference room trying to scramble to figure out, well, how do you do this? Um, and the way that we did it was, uh, which was kind of funny, was that Dax and I had to direct each other, like we had to question each other, and then we were both subject to cross. Um, so there was there was a nine eleven sixty eight, you know, offer that had been made. There was a thirteen six eleven and an unliquidated damages demand as well. So the the bad faith part. Which was partially correlated to the altering of records um, and the failing to disclose that they were altered, pre-suit or post-suit for several months. So you know there was all of that evidence that came out pre- and post-suit issues, um, and we actually haven't even had the hearing yet as it relates to the nine eleven sixty eight portion. So that will be that's an additional that, that's yet to come. Wow. Um, but we we basically showed the jury everything. We said, hey, here's our fee agreement. Here's you know what our hourly rate would be. Here's what we've, you know, the estimate as for hours are concerned. And we did not ask the jury for any certain amount. We said, y'all, at that point, we're you know, pretty trusting of them. We said, well, you know, tell us, you know, give us whatever you think is appropriate. So the 11 million, I think what we figured out was that it was, half of our contingency fee so we had it at like a 35 percent contingency fee and I think that 11 was half of that I think that's what we figured out yep yeah we we uh we told him you know uh so the fact that Dax was a judge was never allowed to be mentioned in right. court. Um, and so when we put down you know, his hourly rate, we did it more than mine, hoping that we would induce them to take the bait to que- you know to <laughs> question that or to uh, try to negate that hourly rate. And of course, they didn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. They were much more <laughs> focused on, uh, on, I, I uh, say, on mine.
0: I will <laughs> say that I loved I love watching them cross Natalie. Because, you know, defense lawyers, they're under insurance defense contracts, right? It's not a market rate. You know, they have very artificially low rates because the insurance companies control that. And so they, the defense lawyer asked Natalie, do you think it's fair or just that you're asking this jury for $750 an hour when I only bill $195 an hour? (laughs) And Natalie's response was like, Quite frankly, what I do is harder than what you do. I mean, it was like it was awesome. I mean, at that point, it was the jury. I said it now. nicer than that. <laughs> you know, it was so, but it was so. Uh, you did, you did say it nicer. I will say that. he said, "We're friends. I, I respect you as a lawyer, but with <clears> all respect, <throat> what I do is harder than what you do." And I mean, we had just popped them for sixty-five million dollars, so it's right. not, the jurors already loved our side, so it wasn't a, a big stretch. Uh, I thought they were going to give us our hourly, which was, I think we calculated like 3.4 million or 3.5 million, and they ended up giving us 11. But yes, I think that moment was so brilliant. Loved every moment of that cross. It was great. That's awesome.
2: That is the weirdest feeling. I don't know if y'all have ever experienced that, though, because I'm sitting there in the witness stand and then... Yeah, you know, they're having these, you know, objections and these sidebars, and I'm having to sit there and just I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. back going up, and I'm like, oh my God, this stuff feels so weird. It's like an out-of-body experience. Um, but it was hilarious because then you're getting to do all the things that you tell witnesses to do. So I'm like leaning my chair, talking to the jury, <laughs> you know, feeding right. me these <laughs> softballs about my you know, right. my experience and what kind of cases I work on and yeah, you know, I'm like, well, that's that's you know, uh, well, that, I'll got, do that any day. And we finally yeah. got to tell the
0: jurors that we went to high school together because I think up to that point they thought we were like dating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: funny. Uh, they watch everything. They watch everything. Yes, so
4: true. Wow. Um,
1: yeah, so uh, uh, we were talking beforehand that our our law partner w- got a nice verdict last week, but he actually was in the same place you guys were, and he he took the stand to to uh, defend his fees and underwent the cross examination of the uh, of the defense lawyer and had some fun on um, on answering some of those questions. So uh, it's it definitely puts you in a different position. But um, well, hey, Natalie and Dex, this has been just a a great uh, discussion. I mean, this case. You know, it, not only is this a difficult case, and and you all did a, a just a super, superb job of putting it together, but it's uh it, it's a an issue that you know is much bigger. And I know, I know, Natalie, you've done work on this before, but you know, mental health issues are much bigger throughout society than than you know people know or or like to even talk about. And uh, and these cases are important, uh, and they're and uh, you know. Uh, kudos to you guys for trying a great case but also just having the courage to take this case and uh, and try the hell out of it so uh,
2: well the issues are important and the facilities are important and they're necessary and they do save lives and you know the, the last thing that any of us wanted or ever want is that you know the fact that this bad experience should not be ever viewed as some reason not to go to rehab or not to seek out mental health care. I mean, the goal was and is that, that they that they get better and that they realize that they don't have a past just because they happen to be treating folks who a lot of times are not the most sympathetic folks in our society or not the most um, you know plaintiff friendly. It's not like you look at somebody who's got a you know, 15-year drug addiction and mental health issues and go, oh, that's the perfect plan. If it's not, and I think a lot of times when you're dealing with folks who who are are those kind of people, the facilities, whether it's jails, mental health facilities, drug abuse, you know, they can think that they have less exposure if they do start cutting corners. And I think that hopefully has been Rectified or that perception it, to some degree.
1: You, you know what I love about this case, and it's it's uh, you know definitely a lesson for younger lawyers, it, which is you know you had two very difficult issues uh, to deal with, and it was the crux of your case. But mental health and then substance abuse, which you normally you want to run from those issues when you're representing a plaintiff, but uh, but that you guys. Uh, you know, just went directly at those issues. Uh, you know, were right up front with the jury. You know, told him that's the issue. Told him that's who your client was, and that he was working to get help. And that's and, and that's what this facility is there for. So, I mean, it's uh, it you know, we've talked about it a million times on this uh, podcast, which is you know, credibility in the courtroom is everything. And um, and when you you know have issues that are difficult to talk about, many times it's best just to be right up front and honest about it because jurors know these issues they they've dealt with them so um, exactly. well uh hey is it so natalie and dax is there anything else about the uh, uh Carousillo versus uh metro atlanta recovery residences and richard waldman uh case that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure our listeners know about
2: oh well, the only other thing i will say just you know i i, I think that the the best thing that we had going for us was that Dax and I both had our personal experiences with the issues. It was things that we, that we personally cared about the issues. And I will say, you know, we, Dax was the only person that I asked to come try this with me. And that was by design. You know, I wanted us to have um, a diverse table at trial table. And, and I feel strongly about that. Um, I think there's been some folks in the past who thought that if, uh, you know, if it was a woman lead attorney, that somehow, you know, that, that there's a an issue with uh, can, can a woman get as big of a verdict? Um, is there an issue with, you know, should, how important is it for your, your, your trial team to be diverse and to have those different vantage points? Um, I, I will tell you it, it helped us, right. It helped us even in our perspectives, It helped us with which witnesses, you know, with when I did the direct of the mom and then Dax did the direct of the dad, it just, you know, a dad talking to a dad, mom talking to a mom, there was just a, a, a way that it, it fit that was on purpose. And I would just encourage folks to, to think about that more Mm -hmm. when they're putting their trial teams together. And if, you know, if you're, if you're going to have a case dealing with something, um, to take that because your juries are not going to be all guys or all girls or all black or all white. They're gonna be diverse. you know yeah. and and if you're <clears throat> if you skip having that resource on your team, you're missing you're missing something i
0: was I was gonna say that almost the same thing. I'd say that the chemistry between you and your co-counsel, uh, you know is really important that you you trust each other. Uh, and you know i I hadn't tried a case in fifteen years, so this was. I mean, I presided over hundreds of cases, so I was certainly very comfortable in the courtroom. But, I, you know, Natalie trusting me to take some pretty big witnesses, you know, I kept saying, I was like, are you sure? I mean, it's been a long time since I've done this. Um, and so there was a lot of trust there. And I think we, we worked really well together. We carpooled to the courthouse together. Like I would pick her up in the morning. I mean, we, we, yeah. you have to be ready to spend a lot of time oh, yeah. uh, with your, with your co-counsel. <laughs> if you don't have good chemistry. The, the jury's going to pick up on it. And I think that's why When I, I wasn't joking. I think they thought we were dating because we were always like, hugged up on each other. Like we're like sitting right next to each other in each other's ear. Um, but because we, we really just, we enjoyed trying the case together. And I think that showed that we, we, we cared about each other. We love each other. We loved our clients. And and that think all that authenticity, you know, it's really important. That's part of your credibility being authentic. You authentically like your clients. You authentically like your co-counsel. You trust each other. All that is, is the intangibles that make trials, uh, you know, take good trials and make them into great trials and get good results, make into great results. And those are the things people don't talk about, but it all matters when it comes to a jury that's looking at everything that's going on. They're perceiving everything that's happening. Uh, you know, one thing that well, the last thing I'll leave y'all with is uh, the one thing I did learn as a judge is I got to watch juries for 11 years. My view was directly at jurors. And lawyers, I think, do a very poor job of, of sitting there and observe how things are being, being accepted by jurors, right? And it got to a point where, you know, I got to cross Dr. Waldman and really he gave me a lot of opportunities to to really slice him up. And, and that was on him. But by the time he took the stand for direct in their case in chief, half the jurors who physically turned their bodies away from him right. when he took the stand. And when I saw that, I was like, hey, Natalie, I'm not going to cross him again. We're good. I mean, he has, they haven't even asked the first direct question yet. And half the jurors are already physically turning their bodies away from him. They don't care what he has to say at this point. So why are we going to prolong this? Let's just not ask any more questions. So just being able to make the sort of last second decisions, call the audible, I'm not crossing him again, knowing when to sit down because you're looking at the jurors like I've made my point. I'm going to sit down. I've got more questions. But I'm good, like just learning to read their body language and and they'll tell you when you're done. Yeah, like they'll tell you when you're done.
2: So and we would tell each other when we were done too. You know, if I was when I was crossing, you know, the defendants, I mean, I would look back at Dax, you know, and sort of be getting waiting for the 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 head nod or the the sit down nod, right? Or the keep going or the sit down and just that awareness of the room and we get so hyper-focused in, yeah. you know, just in our own little bubble, you know, what we're doing. We don't take that breath to, to how is this coming across to everybody else in the room and, and going back and at, you know, sort of that look back, you is yeah. it time to shut up have I beat this horse enough or do I need to keep going? Um, and all of that is just a, a you're really dependent on, on your communication styles and and I think we sometimes don't think enough about that uh, in these cases. Yeah,
1: absolutely. All great points. All great points. Well, um well, let me remind everybody we've been talking to Natalie Woodward and Dax Lopez uh, and you if you want to look up Natalie, uh, you can go to warlawgroup.com and if you want to look up Dax, go to dglattorneys.com. Uh Natalie and Dax, it's been so great to have you on the show. Thank you thanks a thank lot so, so
2: much thank y'all for doing this podcast i learned a lot from it and uh, enjoy it and i know it's a lot of work for you guys but um, yeah thank you keep doing it
1: ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict